listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We are a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. The first reading is from the 25th chapter of Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property, and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of Jubilee, you shall return, every one of you, to your property. You shall observe my statutes and faithfully keep my ordinances so that you may live on the land securely. The the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live on it securely. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, and with me you are but aliens and tenants. Throughout the land that you hold, you shall provide for the redemption of the land. But the open land around the cities may not be sold, for that is their possession for all time. If any of your kin fall into difficulty and become dependent on you, you shall support them. They shall live with you as though resident aliens. Do not take interest in advance or otherwise make a profit from them, but fear your God. Let them live with you. You shall not lend them your money at interest taken in advance or provide them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. Thank you, Cam. I uh, would have loved uh, for us to spend the entire time this morning just reading this chapter from Leviticus and then breaking down piece by piece uh, but even the whole chapter was a little daunting for Kim, and so she called me and she said, can I, can I take pieces out of this? And, and so we worked together. Thank you for that, Kim. Um, and I'm going to keep going. This is Leviticus 26, um, and I did the, sort of the same thing you did, Kim. So this is uh, the first few chapters up to verse 13 in Leviticus 26. If you follow my statutes and keep my commandments and observe them fully... I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall overtake the vintage, and the vintage shall overtake the sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and live securely in your land. And I will grant peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and no one shall make you afraid. And I will remove the dangerous animals from the land, and no sword will go through it. I will look with favor upon you and make 
you fruitful and multiply you, and I will maintain my covenant with you, and you shall eat old grain long stored, and you shall have to clear out the old to make way for the new. Now make my dwelling place in your midst, and I will not abhor you, for I will be with you, will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, for I am the Lord the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt to to be slaves no more. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you to walk erect. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, I really would love to spend a lot of time on this, but um, I'm not sure whether you have had any engagement with the book of Leviticus, much less uh, this chapter um, and so it would be, I would suggest to go back and read the story. But I'm, I, I actually prepared my sermon in script because I love this passage so much I was afraid of what I might say. So I'm going to read this for you. So I think it's time for us to have a serious conversation about something I think is at the heart of the Christian tradition. Hope. And so I'm going to start this morning with a stanza from a, a famous stanza from a poem by Percy Shelley. To love and bear, to hope until hope creates from its own wreck the thing it contemplates. This is to be good, great and joyous, beautiful and free. This alone is life, joy, empire and victory. And so I have a crucial question this morning for us to consider. And it's a question that I think should really shape us as a community It should be the heart of how we understand who we are as a church here at Brookside. And here's the crucial question. What is it that gives you hope? Now, when Peter, the Apostle Peter, who wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter, when he wrote his first letter to the persecuted Christian communities in the first century, they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And they were living in a world that was experiencing a sense of hopelessness. And Peter knew that they had every reason to give up hope. And yet he urged them to remember the sacred beauty that they had experienced together in community with Jesus. And he pressed them always to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asked them why they were a hopeful people. Because you see, people are living in fear, Peter explained. But we do not fear like they fear. In a world filled with fear, you know, hope looks strange. A hopeful people, they live differently. People who live out of an inner core of hope, they do odd things. A hopeful people is a peculiar people. And people will ask you, Peter wrote, why do you hope? Why is your way of life so different Be ready, Peter instructed them, to tell others about this hope that propels you forward because in the face of hopelessness, you have been called to be a people of hope, a hopeful people. I think that that is our calling too at Brookside. See, here at Brookside, I believe that all of us have a yearning that's deep within or inside of us to encounter the same sacred beauty that they did the healing, life-giving love for the world that's deep in the heart of God. And I believe that in spite of the hopelessness that the world around us is experiencing, maybe the hopelessness that many of us are experiencing, 
That in spite of that, God is empowering us to be a faithful people, a people that are faithful to the same call that Peter gave to the early church. Are we ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us why we are so peculiar? Why are we so different? Why is it that in the world that is hopeless, we continue to be a hopeful people? So when I think about this question, I think of a number of Christian heroes throughout history, people who had hope in spite of what seemed like hopeless situations. These are the peculiar people that are mentioned, for example, in Hebrews 11, that great cloud of witnesses that fills that hall of faith we've been talking about for the past few weeks. People like Abraham, who according to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, Abraham was considered righteous specifically because he had, quote, hope against hope. In the face of hopelessness, what is it that gives us hope? I think of people like Dorothy Day, who against all hope still had hope enough to care for the hungry and hopeless, even though she had no idea often where her next meal was going to come from. I think that if we ask her what gave her hope, she would probably tell us something, maybe rephrase or paraphrase one of Peter Morin's aphorisms, something like, the only way the future can be different is if we make the present different. When the world is filled with darkness, what gives us hope? I think of people like Dr. King, who against all hope had hope enough to believe in a world that he said regularly he has not seen. And I think that if we asked him what gave him hope, he would say something like, I had a dream. Now, here's the thing, is that once he had the dream and knew the truth at the heart of it, he couldn't undream it, you see. He would probably say something when asked, something like this, only in the darkness can you see the stars. In a world riddled with violence, what is it that gives us hope? Well, I think of people like Mahatma Gandhi, who against all hope said that in a gentle way you can shake the world. In a world so inhumane, what is it that gives us hope? I think of Andre Trochmi. Now, if you've not heard of him, he was a pastor in France in a town called Les Chambons. In the winter of 1940, he opened the door to a hungry and cold woman, and that simple act of kindness became a beacon of hope so bright that thousands of people fleeing Vichy, the Vichy government and the Nazis during World War II came there. And against all hope, he was asked by the authorities whether he was harboring Jews, and you know what his answer was? I don't even know what a Jew is. I only know human beings. You know, sometimes when people talk about hope, they're not talking about that kind of hope. They're really talking about something else. They don't really mean the kind of faithful, holy hope that we're talking about this morning. Too often what they really mean is a false sense of optimism. In a world that seems hopeless, you know, pessimism can be easy. And so a false sense of optimism may feel like you can congratulate yourself because you're not pessimistic. So optimism may feel like it's the right alternative, but I want to tell you, maybe not. I think we got to get this right. How do we look at the world and the situation that it's in and know how to view it as people of faith? 
So let me explain. The glass is half empty, right? Everybody knows that, right? So, okay, yes, maybe that's accurate. But is that what truth sounds like? You see, I'm making a comparison between accuracy and truth. Maybe they're not the same. Pessimism creates anxiety. Murphy's Law, you know, anything can go wrong, will go wrong, so you better prepare for the worst. But that may be correct, um, but mm, is that what truth sounds like? Pessimism, you see, is rooted in a sense of fear and negativity. In a world where hope seems elusive, pessimism sounds like truthfulness. But can you be a pessimistic people and be a people who live by faith? Is it possible to be a pessimistic people and a hopeful people? Were people called to live and believe in the promise of God and believe that grace is more operative in the world than any other power? But I think we should be careful because instead of pessimism, we might be easily tempted to think that optimism is the right alternative. But you know, optimism can be dangerous too. One social critic put it this way, illusions function like a drug. They can make you feel good about yourself and you can quickly become unwelcome if you ask critical questions. Because questioning the illusion, you see, it bursts that feeling, that goodness feeling. And those, see, who ask questions, who offer a critique of who we are and where we're going, they're dismissed as cynics or pessimists or heretics even. You just don't ask questions like that. You see, optimism can be like a disease. In the face of utter catastrophe, you can plow forward with cheerful optimism and not be rooted in any sense of reality. That social critic put it this way, if hope becomes something that you express through illusion, it's not hope, it's fantasy. But we're talking about hope, you see. And hope, I think, I think it has to be something different than fantasy if we're talking about the kind of holy, righteous, life-giving hope that comes from faith. The hope against hope that people like Abraham had. The hope against hope of people like Dorothy Day and Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi and Andre Trokmi. When we talk about hope, we have to be talking about something other than the illusion of false optimism. Hope the kind of holy hope that Peter was calling the early Christians to, it involves a willingness to look at the challenges that are squarely before us and be honest about them and have the courage to believe in the grace of God to move forward and create, be creative and move forward with inspired action to change things. What kind of hope does that look like? See, it's easy for faith communities when they're faced with challenges to go one of two directions. Either they lose hope and they slide into pessimism and they mistake cynicism for truth, or they can slide off into the sunset and trade reality for illusion. But what we need, what Brookside needs, what the Christian faith needs, what our world needs today is a hope against hope. That kind of faith that the great cloud of witnesses that surround us had. This is the kind of hope against hope of people like Dorothy Day and Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi and Andre Trotmi. To paraphrase 
Peter's call for the early Christians, for us, I think what we should ask is, are we even ready to give ourselves the question, what is it that gives us hope? Are we a hopeful people at all? As I mentioned earlier, Andre Trokby served as a moral compass for his village. And you know, he's credited with inspiring a rescue effort that saved some 5,000 refugees during the Holocaust. In his little book, and I was going to bring it today, but I forgot it. It's small and yellow and it's beautiful. And it's, it's called Jesus and the Nonviolent Revolution. Trokby made it clear that his moral courage didn't come out of nowhere. He even would say he didn't feel courageous doing it. It was something that just sort of happened because he was acting the way he always does. His, uh, his actions were rooted in faith. And his understanding of the teachings of Jesus, that hope takes the shape in a kind of holy partnership, an engagement with the world that gives birth to what Scripture called jubilee. Jubilee, that central theme in Andre Trokmi's book that explained why he was willing to open his home to refugees that were seeking asylum. In particular, it was rooted in his understanding that when Jesus proclaimed the good news, he was putting into effect the year of Jubilee. And Andre Trokmi put it this way, Jubilee was a preeminent sign of God's justice and salvation on earth. Now that's something worth hoping for. Now, the notion of Jubilee, it's rooted in the story of a liberating God that rescued Israel from Egypt and promised to lead them into the promised land. Everybody's heard that phrase before, right? Right? Yeah, shake your head. Yeah. So most Christians are somewhat familiar with the notion of a promised land. If you're not, you should be. I think it shapes a lot of the politics of today. But what Jubilee teaches us is that the promises of God are not one directional from God to us. Read that passage again about Jubilee and the promised land. The land was not the promised land because it was a land that was magically different from other lands. The people were not promised people because they were more beloved than any other people. Or... Because they had stumbled upon a God that was bigger and better than the other gods, you see. This was not going to be a promised land because there was something special about the land or the people or their God. The Jubilee promise, as we read it, it teaches us that the land was supposed to become a place of promise because they worshipped the Creator, the the one who had created all of the land and all of the peoples. And this creator had rescued them from slavery and empowered them to live in the full sense of freedom and invited them into a holy partnership together. It was the partnership that was the promise. Partnership with God, with the land, and with each other. You see, Jubilee is a celebration of that promise that the result of their faithfulness to this holy partnership would bring freedom for everyone involved. Their hope was that in their faithfulness with each other, the land and to God, this would make them a people of God's promise. You see? Their holy partnership with the land and with each other and with God would allow them to bring forth a sense of freedom that they were created to have from the beginning. This was what it was going to look like for them to fully establish themselves as the people who had been freed from Egypt. The promise that God had invited them to was not a promise by God merely to be consumed by them as if they could sit back and watch God do it. 
The hope of the Jubilee promise was a hope of a holy partnership. And that was what gave Andre Trokmi the kind of hope that inspired him, almost without thinking about it, to lead an entire village to save thousands of Jews during the Holocaust. He didn't say, this land is my land. He didn't say, this people is my people. He said, this land is God's and all people are God's. Despite the hopelessness of the world around us, you see, it might feel more honest at times to be pessimistic. But I believe God is calling us to be a hope-filled people. And I don't believe that the kind of hope that we're called to is based on an illusion, a false sense of optimism that allows us to ignore the challenges around us. It's not a kind of hope that believes that our relationship with God is one directional, as if God will do everything for us. The hope, see, that we're being called to is a kind of hope against hope that the people of faith before us have had, the people like Andre Trokmi had. It's the jubilee hope of a holy partnership, God calling us to be deeply engaged with God's love together, and by doing that, that we'll learn to love in such a way that it will change the world and even set creation free. In a world where it can seem so easy to be hopeless, what is it that continues to give us hope? Well, I can only tell you what gives me hope. And what gives me hope is that I believe that the spirit of our creator was, has so empowered us that we can enter into a holy partnership with the creator and with the creation. It's a partnership where relationships with a share that, you know, partnerships are those things where, you know, everybody's maybe, maybe you've not been invited to be a partner in a business. You know, partnerships are such that you have a shared stake in the outcome, right? You have a shared stake in the outcome. It's my prayer that the folks here at Brookside Community Church here in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, that we're able to get a glimpse of the heart of the hope of the gospel, this hope of a holy covenant partnership with creation, with each other and God. And it's my prayer that we can experience together the fullness of the love that brought us into being to begin with. My hope is rooted in the belief that if we fully enter into this holy partnership together, that we can experience a jubilee so profound that the deep yearning within each of us to encounter God will just burst free. And that the wholeness and goodness and peace and life that all of us are yearning for will just pour out naturally into the world around us because we have learned to love each other well. Because we have been faithful to our holy promises, partnerships. I believe this is what the word jubilee means, and I believe this is the kind of jubilee promise that will call, cause the world around us to look at us and say, ah, yeah, that's what I've been looking for all my life. What is it that gives us hope? I think if we can figure that out, good start. My prayer is that we will find it somewhere in the vicinity of a jubilee. May it be so. Amen.